This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, welcome to Into the Wild. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton, as I sit here in my room, in my flat, in North London, under a duvet, sweating because it's summer. It's so warm. This intro is not going to be long today. I'm so, so warm. How are you all? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. It means the world to me. And also, thank you to everyone that sent me lovely messages after last week's episode, Nature Room 101. I had no idea that this episode was so needed by you. I genuinely thought it was just myself, Jack, and Lucy having a rant about wildlife. Uh, but I got so many nice messages from you all saying it was a bit of comedy that you all needed in a time of a lot of So... I'm glad it was well received and I think we'll be doing some more and some more episode styles like that as well. I've had a very busy week. I've got so many weddings at the moment and I'm dying to get out and see some nature and uh, next week I'm heading to a nature reserve. Well, actually, as I record this next week, so as you're listening this week, I'm heading to a nature reserve, so prepare yourself for a lot more updates on that. But like I said, there's a lot of crap in the world at the moment. We don't want to talk about that on here. What we do want is some positive, some vitamin P. So... It's time for 60 Second Nature News. I've got four stories, positive nature stuff from around the world. I'm going to try and read them in 60 seconds. We all know I won't, but let's give it a go. Here we go, 60 Second Nature News. (gasps) Good luck. Hertfordshire and Middlesex Wildlife Trust, in partnership with other organisations, have reintroduced the water vole to a stretch of the River Ver, of the west of St Albans. Water vole populations have been plummeting a massive 90% in 50 years due to habitat loss and predation from the American mink, an invasive species. So projects like this are essential to save that much-loved British species. Indonesia reports two new Javan rhino calves in the species' last chance group. Two sightings of different calves on different locations have been spotted in April and June this year. The two new calves have boosted the hope for a stable population growth for a nearly extinct species on its last habitat. Turtles in Sri Lanka are getting Facebook. Well, not quite. But an initiative stalled by COVID-19 is looking to get back on track to identifying individual marine turtles. The Turtle ID project uses photos taken by recreational divers to build a database using unique facial patterns. So if anyone gets added by a marine turtle on Facebook, don't worry, it's not spam. And lastly, seahorses have been found in the Thames. I know, I can't quite believe it myself. Two species, the long and short-snouted seahorse, have made their home in the River Thames. Poor swimming ability, (laughs) lol, means they don't tend to travel far, so hopefully this means the seahorses are here to stay. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Nailed it, mate. Ooh, okay, that wasn't too bad. I think that was about 60 seconds. Those were some nice stories, quickly. I'm getting there. You know, done it for the 20th time now. I'm I'm hoping I'm learning. (laughs) Let's move on to today's show, shall we? If I said to you, would you like to listen to a wonderful chat about sloths, there's not a chance in hell you would say no. And that is exactly what you lot are getting today. 
When I decided I wanted to talk about sloths, there really was only one person I could talk to, and that was Nat Geo's young explorer, zoologist, speaker, and sloth advocate for the Sloth Appreciation Society, Lucy Holliston. Myself and Lucy had a wonderful chat about these incredible animals and why they are so important to be the face for the habitat they live on as well. We also spoke about some projects that Lucy's working on at the moment um, at the end of the episode. So I will blabber on for no more as I introduce the episode Sloths with Lucy Holliston. If we talk about sloths, maybe we should start really slowly. We could do just lots of breaks and just talk really really slowly just be like hi <laughs> lucy <laughs> welcome it just sounds creepy actually <laughs> that got really weird <laughs> hi lucy welcome to into the world how are you hello i'm good thank you very good um the sun is finally out it doesn't feel much like summer at the moment we've had lots of rain <laughs> But um, be mad. yeah, I, I just it's just nice to go out and sit in the garden and it's very, very overgrown in the patch that I sit. So I, I like to pretend I'm in the jungle or something when I'm down there. <laughs> but um, Yeah. All good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah. I said to you before we recorded, I'm between homes at the moment, which sounds it makes it sound like I'm struggling. I'm fine, everyone. I'm fine. So let's start where we always start, Lucy, on this uh, show where we find out who we're talking to. So do you want to tell us who you are and what is it you do? Yes, so I'm Lucy Hooliston and I'm all sorts of things. At the moment, I'm a zoology student. I'm also a digital content creator, I guess. I run the social media for the Sloth Appreciation Society, which is why Incredible. we're talking about sloths. <laughs> um, and I was, I was recently named a National Geographic Young Explorer. And I think mm. we're going to go on to talk a bit about my project for that as well. But my interest has always been native wildlife and UK wildlife so I've always been a bit of a I like to see myself as a sort of champion for these animals that people don't necessarily think about or care about or appreciate as much I've always found insects far cuter than pandas and kittens and things don't know what's going on there um, don't know what the, don't the, know why the, don't yeah, ask the any psychology further questions is behind that but that's always been the case and I was obsessed with insects when I was a kid and um actually made my dad cry on multiple occasions by bringing worms into the house so your, your, dad, yeah, your dad yeah and physically cried over a what what did. because of disgust or sheer love I like to think out of sheer love but I know <laughs> that that wasn't the case um and yeah actually a story that I've I kind of forgot about for a long time and I've just started to tell it to people because it's young Lucy in a nutshell my first detention was given to me for stroking bumblebees out in my school playground well I snuck into an area of playground that was kind of off limits to us (laughs) because there were no staff patrolling it and and I managed to get I managed to get a whole group of us, a whole group of friends, somehow convinced that it was really really cool for us to go and stroke bumblebees at lunchtime, and so well a whole group of us used to go there and yeah and so I was um yeah that was my first detention I was in year three I was you know year three I was yeah I was devastated I felt like I'd I'd let myself down but now I'm very (laughs) glad because now I've got that story to tell 
<laughs> I'm. I think the most shocking part of that story is that when you were in primary school, they were giving out detentions. Mm. I, I thought that was to, a secondary school thing. I know. I had to sit in a. I had to sit in one of the cloakrooms for a whole lunchtime and just stare at the wall and think about the bees that I wasn't <laughs> stroking in that moment. You didn't do the Bart Simpson thing where you were right in lines going, "I will not tempt students <laughs> to stroke bees." No. No. <laughs> That's such a harsh punishment for enjoying nature. I know. This is the problem with the British education system. No offense to teachers. But so you say so you've got that love for like well, I guess the insects world, which I share with you actually. I've always had that buzz for and that's no pun intended, for insects and stuff like that. I, I really I don't know whether it's because they're so easy to find. Which a lot of people say about birds, but I would argue that. But I think insects are pretty much under every log. Yeah. If you don't look, you don't see them. And as mm. soon as you start looking, they're everywhere and they're just yeah. so alien looking and, you know, really complex within their own ecosystem, within mm. just insects alone. There's a whole different world. Yeah. And I, I think I like, what I like about insects, what I always have is like, like, like you said, they're within their own ecosystem. It's real shrunk down. You'll look at like a log and you'll go, some of these insects just won't leave this entire area. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's their universe for them. So I find that really kind of like, oh, I'm like this giant. I mean, I'm six foot seven. I'm a giant anyway. But it's like, I'm a giant for this insect. But so where, how did it begin for you? Were your parents into nature? Or was it just something that kind of you grabbed as a child and ran with? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people are interested in nature because their parents were or they grew up in an area where there was a lot of green space and they got to go out and and I just lived in a three-bedroom house in the suburbs of London my parents mm. weren't they they encouraged my interests they weren't nature people they really weren't nature people yeah and I just I remember my nan always used to watch spring watch and autumn watch and from about four years old I used to go round to hers and stay at hers for the weekend and we used to sit and watch spring watch and autumn watch and I used to love it and I think really that's where it started because that just became this this event in my year and I I learned so much and then I used to go out into the garden and find these things and that's the thing I liked insects I wasn't scared of insects so it didn't matter where I was there was always wildlife there for me to pick up and and look at and I used to read reference books about about bugs from cover to cover I remember I used to in my year two class my poor teaching assistant in our English classes we had to read aloud whatever book we were reading at the time and I would have <laughs> I would have a book like a reference book with all these insect yeah. species and people used to have to sit there and listen to me read read that <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah that that was Having that appreciation for nature on my doorstep and having that connection to it, that's the thing. I wouldn't say that I have a passion for nature. I'd say it's very much like a connection. It kind of feels like a, a big part of me growing up and just, yeah, I've, I feel very connected to it and always have done. I have conversations with a lot of people about how do we engage kids with nature and that's yeah, it's a really difficult thing because for people that don't have access to it and for people that whose parents are just disconnected from it, it's it's really, really tricky. I think that word connection is the big thing there. <clears throat> I think I agree. I think we always use the word passion, but having the word passion makes it feel like that it's not available for everyone. Like, mm. you know, you've got to have the passion. If you don't have the passion, there's no point in doing it. But I think the word connection 
makes it more human and makes it more kind of natural, really. We, we all have a connection with the natural world, whether we like it or not. Some of us lose it, some of us find it again. Other people like me and you are like fully connected to it on probably a level where we're like, we need a break. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I think that starting to use that word connection rather than passion for animals or wildlife or nature, I think is a real important thing. And I'm glad you did it then because I hadn't really thought of that. That was um, a very interesting point. Um, moving away from insects, not for long, because we all go back to them, but... We're going to start our show focusing on the wonderful world about sloths. Woohoo! I don't think I've ever had a full conversation about a sloth. Well, but it's, I'm really excited about yeah, it. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. People just don't understand them as animals. Everyone loves them. They're definitely not mm. underappreciated, but they're so misunderstood. Even the other day, my mum said to me, oh, how, how long does it take to get all these photos of them? Because they're in all these different positions, you know, they must not move a lot. And I said, oh, trust me, they do. They're so misunderstood. And there's so much that even scientists just don't know about them. I'm going to show... Right, let's... Okay, so you said at the beginning, you're, you run the social media for the Sloth... Was it the Sloth Appreciation Society? Yep, it's a real thing. Oh, that's a society. Can, I, can you get me a badge? I want to have that badge. I do badge. actually have a badge. I'll see how many I have. They're, they're like very, very limited edition, but I think we do have some badges. I would love. Maybe, maybe. I can... <laughs> Sorry, Ryan's just kind of, you know, <laughs> badge dealing on the podcast now. <laughs> it's just such a great name for a society. Like, how could you not appreciate a sloth? Um, but you're a sloth advocate. That's what you say on social media. You're an advocate for the sloths. So tell us why, why do you love a sloth? Again, it's going back to that whole weird animal thing. It was a few yeah. years ago I kind of discovered them. And I mean they were they still are. They they became they suddenly became really kind of trendy. You have those trends with animals. I remember it was <laughs> yeah. flamingos at one point and yeah. there's always something, but somehow sloths, pardon the pun, have managed to like cling on. They've been around for about <laughs> ten years. That's a great they pun. have been <laughs> People just love them and they don't seem mm. to be getting bored of them. And I just thought, yeah, they're so weird and they're so, they're kind of human looking because they've got these, their faces and, and I can now probably recognise literally hundreds of individual sloths from photos from, that have been rescued over the past, I don't know, 10 years or something from the photos that I look at from work. Wow. Because when you, when you spend time around them or you look at them a lot, they all look different. Their faces are different. And um, I really do sound like a crazy sloth lady now, but <laughs> I'll take it. They do. They all look different and they have, same with any animal, I guess, when you get to know them, they've got their own little quirks. I thought they were they were weird and wonderful. And I've, I managed to land this job as the social media manager slash content producer for the Sloth Appreciation Society. Then I started learning more and more about them. And the more you learn about them, the more weird they get. And so, <laughs> yeah, it was just this spiral. And then I actually got to spend some time out in Panama. I lived at a wildlife oh rescue centre that specialises in, in rescuing sloths for three months in 2018, 2019, I think it was. Yeah, I got a real insight into them as into their conservation, into the problems they're facing and what it takes to look after them because they don't just sleep all day. Like they are, <laughs> they're, they're surprisingly hard work. And um, yeah, again, the more you learn about something, the more interested you get. And it's it's just gone from there. And they they are, they're not lacking for kind of love. Everyone loves them. 
And I am always wary of these charismatic, fluffy, cute species that kind of steal the limelight and everyone focuses on them and wants to mm. conserve them and all the the weird, small, ugly, wonderful, underloved, all of those things just get forgotten about. And the sloth is one of those creatures, you know, that everyone loves and people may tend to focus on that rather than the other components of, of its ecosystem, but it's mm. that umbrella. It's the classic, if people love sloths and they donate to sloth conservation, they are also protecting their habitat and the wider yeah. ecosystem. So, that you know, they're just, they're a really great, engaging, fun animal and tool essentially to help to conserve the wider rainforest tropical ecosystem mm. and so that that's important to me and there are still so many threats that they face and again the misunderstanding that people have towards them it's not just not understanding their basic biology it's things like people think they would still make great pets and yeah. I have people message me saying, oh, you know, I really want a sloth. Have you got any advice? And I have to explain to them. Unfortunately, most of the time, people are really receptive to it. And they say, oh, thank you so much for telling me this. But basically, they're wild animals for a start. They're yeah. not supposed to be pets. And they're very, very sensitive to stress. And the three-toed sloths, it can actually be fatal to them. You know, they they have a long gestation period, sloths. So... There, there just isn't enough kind of already there to supply this market. And so ultimately, you know, sloths have to be snatched from from the wild and then they're, they're shipped hundreds of miles to be sold. And people can't recreate the correct diet, the correct no. environment for an animal like that. Even people that are professionals, professional wildlife rescuers, professional keepers at zoos and whatnot, they are still trying to figure out what is the ideal diet for these animals so it just isn't great and they're, and they're also they're not cute and cuddly they're really really um no they're they've really got very strong. sharp claws they can be and they can be very aggressive apparently they're three times stronger than humans because their claws don't move separately they're bound together by muscles oh, wow. and so they kind of just clamp shut and they are so so strong and so sharp Jesus. and their teeth are sharp as well so there are two groups. There are the three-toed sloths and there are the two-toed sloths. Nice. I like it when it's clearly divided. Yeah. <laughs> most people most people recognise the three-toed sloth as the classic. Quite. The classic yeah. sloth, you know, with the little smile and the dark eye bands and the grey-brown fur. And then the two-toed sloths, they've got these kind of piggish noses and they have really sharp kind of canine teeth. And they can okay. do some some damage. I, I've got a friend who was bitten. Her hand was bitten by a sloth. And yeah, so she knows how how aggressive and how quick they can be as well. They can swipe with those claws and they can bite and they can move when they really need to. So yeah, they're not the cute and cuddly animals that everyone makes them out to be. And I don't think that should put people off of them. You know, that these are wild animals and that yeah. helps them to survive at the end of the day. Putting, um, so. putting people off of them in the right way. Like, I think if we're at, yeah. we're at the stage of life where there's still some people that don't really know how to provide for a dog. So I don't think, <laughs> no offence <laughs> to anyone listening or people in general, but I don't think sloths are ready for human care as no. a normal thing. And no. Nor should probably ever be. So you've got those two types. You said the two-toed and the three-toed. 
where and you said was it Panama you said you went to yeah Panama so I was in I was in the middle of a a national park over in over in Panama and where where else can we is are they restricted to Panama where else can we find sloths I mean I'm not particularly on it with the individual species and their exact ranges Mm. but I know that the there are there are six species of sloth and the brown-throated sloth and the Hoffman's two-toed sloth are the most kind of widespread. And you can find those across Central and South America. All sloths cool. are concentrated somewhere in either Central or South America or both. So they are very widespread. And then you have the main sloth, which is its populations are much more restricted. And that is found along the east coast of Brazil. And then you have an even smaller population of an even weirder species, possibly the weirdest species of sloth, and that is the <laughs> pygmy sloth, which yes. is yeah, it's forty percent smaller than it. It looks it looks exactly <laughs> I the same. You were gonna say, I thought you were going to say it's forty percent sloth. Well, yeah, forty percent. Forty percent adorable. 60%. I don't know what the sixty percent would be. What yeah. kind of weird hybrid animal we've created there? But um, yeah, this this pygmy sloth is a shrunken version of the brown throated sloth. Oh man! It lives on a single tiny island off the coast of Panama. It's four kilom- It's four square kilometers, I think. Oh, um, tiny! It's a very tiny island, and so over time, the sloths have just got smaller. They've just shrunk, and um, <laughs> they. So they are. They are critically endangered. Their population, I think, on the last count, was around about two fifty. They think because there's there's a team of scientists oh, wow. from the Zoological Society of London (ZSL) that go out there and monitor the pygmy sloths and they they do these transect surveys across the island to try and figure out how many mm. there are because the island is under pressure from from humans who want to come along and turn it into a, a tourism hotspot basically because it is one of those beautiful golden sandy beaches and there there are a lot of them around costa rica and panama that people go to for their holidays yeah. so they're eyeing this this island up basically and the scientists want to understand what is affecting these sloths, what the potential threats are, how these can affect the sloths and so they can they can put proper conservation, effective conservation measures in place. But they are definitely the rarest and most um, isolated population. And yeah, so that's that's a basic overview of the geography of sloths. I, I do love the way there's a sloth called the main sloth as well. That I don't know if it's spelt in the way I'm thinking of it, but I can just imagine that sloth turning up at a sloth convention going, hello everyone, I'm the main sloth. Thank you very much. Move out my way. The main sloth has arrived. The main, it's, um, it's, it's actually a maned sloth. So it looks oh like... Oh no, no, no now I'm a, embarrassed. It's fine. No, no, because it's, it is... <laughs> It is. I'm glad you drew attention to it because it is. It's the weirdest looking thing. It's got this is it? big, fluffy. Well, yeah, <laughs> head. It looks like a, it looks like a really angry coconut. That's how I would describe it. <laughs> if you Google them, if you Google them, they look. They just look like angry coconuts. Angry coconuts. I've never seen one, obviously, because they are so rare. But I would, I would love to see one. Yeah. Okay. I thought you said main, maned. I'm saying that clearly now, so the listeners know the mistake Ryan made, and you know not to make <laughs> it as well. It's the maned people. Listen when Lucy's talking. Um, 
Here's a question I'm going to ask, and again, this might embarrass myself more, but this is what this podcast is about. What family of animal is a sloth? Obviously, it's a mammal, but I mean, like, what, what does it come under? Because it's not prime. It's not primate. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question because that's it. People often think that because they live up in the trees and just the way, I guess, the way they're kind of bodies are they they think yeah. they're related to primates there's some kind of monkey or something but they're actually xenarthrans yeah. so they are related to things like anteaters and armadillos oh. yeah and that might seem a bit weird at first but if you look at them and you look at their claws in particular you say their feet, yeah. see that you can see that i think they they're all united because I think xenarthrin actually means something like strange joints. That's what it translates into because oh. there's something weird going on with their hip joints <laughs> and sloths have an extra, they have extra neck vertebrae, the three-toed sloths. They have more bones in their neck oh, cool. than than a giraffe, these three-toed sloths. And they that means they can turn their head around, oh I think, two, 270 degrees. So they, they're just, they're very strange. Um, but that, that's another, they have all these adaptations that help them to save energy because they're, they're so slow because they live on leaves, but they can't eat more because the leaves that they eat are, are toxic. So they just, they've just had to slow down their, their whole processing systems. They don't eat much food. So they've got so, such little energy to run on that they've just they've just slowed everything down and they've got all these weird and wonderful ways of <laughs> so doing that's that. why they're slow because yeah. of the energy mm-hmm. consumption because they're eating toxic plants yeah they eat toxic plants so they're like we can only eat a handful of leaves a day so instead oh. of changing our diets we're just gonna slow down and we're just gonna sleep a lot and and people uh, call me as a vegan fussy eater do you know what i mean <laughs> exactly yeah i think the yeah the three-toed sloths are the are the fussiest out of all of them they there are there's only a handful of tree species that they will that they will eat they're really really particular why do they eat toxic leaves that's nature bit that i just don't understand there must the, be fruit <laughs> yeah they they the two-toed sloths do sometimes eat fruit but i don't know why they don't they still eat these leaves, you know. But I guess even from fruit, they don't. They they can only obtain so much energy. I guess if they move so slowly anyway, there's only so much yeah. food they can travel to get. So they've kind of dug themselves a hole there. But yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. the 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 pygmy sloth lives on. It it has a slightly different diet to the mainland three-toed sloths. It eats red mangrove leaves, and there's a bit of investigation going on because they think there's there's a chemical in those leaves that could potentially act as a sort of sedative and could maybe have some evolutionary advantage for the sloth by slowing it down even more so this is kind of just a very it's a theory at the moment but i've i've heard about this i've heard about this and they're they're looking into it the contents of these mangrove leaves to see if there is some sort of benefit to the sloth. That's hilarious. I guess an important question then that I've got to ask you is, what is a typical day? I mean, it's going to vary among species, but what's a typical day for a sloth? So, I mean, they they kind of just hang around, you know? They hang around <laughs> in the treetops and that's where they're, they're best adapted to being, is up in the canopy, but they do come down to the ground. And they come down to the ground once a week to do a poo um they don't they don't go up into the canopy. call it what it is (laughs) and 
they, they, they climb down and this is one of the things that scientists do not know. They don't know exactly why they do it. But they climb down and they go to the base of a tree and they hug the tree. And um, the three-toed sloth, they've got, they've got little tails. So they do this thing that some people call the poo dance and they wiggle their bums and dig a little hole in the soil with their tails. And that's where they do their business. And then once they're nice. done, I don't know how long it takes. We are talking about sloths. They climb back up into, into the trees. And once a week, only happens once a week, I think for the three-toed sloths and for the the um, two-toed sloths, it's about once every five days. So that's that's kind of, that's the life of a sloth. I mean, they they can only have one offspring at a time. What was the gestation period? You said it was really long, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it varies between species, but, but overall I think it's somewhere, it's somewhere like sort of 11 and a half to 12 months. I think three-toed, oh, wow. the, brown, the brown-throated sloths, their gestation period can be up to 12 months. So it's very, very long and only one baby at a time. And so the babies will stay with their mum for a year or up to a oh, year, wow. six months to a year. And, and so it's a very, very long process. And um, when the females are in heat, we were talking earlier about what, whether sloths make any sounds and the female three-toed sloths they actually they scream when they're when they're in heat when they're ready to mate it's like a it's like this shrill kind of whistly scream and it's in a particular pitch it's only ever in d sharp because that is the that is the sound that the this is too specific it's this d sharp whistle that's so so loud i've never heard it but i've seen it on video and the males hear this and they make a beeline a very slow beeline to the female and the two-toed sloths are also they're nocturnal so they're more active at night the three-toed sloths kind of as far as i'm aware they're active pretty much equally at day and night they just periodically kind of Mm. sleep wow what a life i mean i should say a couple of things here uh people don't hug a tree and do a poo at the base just a disclaimer don't try and live a sloth life leave that to the sloths although it sounds very connected (laughs) with nature (laughs) i don't think it's the way we want people to go um what about their conservation so obviously you said about the pygmy sloths obviously in a bit of i wouldn't you know they're on that vulnerable because especially because of their range is very restricted as a whole, are they kind of? Is it mainly habitat loss that is affecting these animals? Is there any? Is there like a poach? Is poaching going on? And and if so, what's being done to help sloths? Yeah, so the main threat to them is habitat fragmentation and urbanisation. As I said, they are adapted to moving around upside down in the trees. When they're on the ground, they can't move very efficiently, and they're very very vulnerable. But what's happening is as these forests get cut up into smaller smaller chunks and Mm. people build roads and residential areas and urban areas they're being forced to come down to the ground to get from one tree to another the canopy is being fragmented and so you'll often get sloths trying to cross roads they try and cross gaps in the canopy using power lines and they can get electrocuted yeah i actually saw that when i was out in panama there was a sloth a two-toed sloth that came in that had been electrocuted and it wasn't 
the kind of most severe injuries that it could have had. I mean, it can be, obviously, it can be lethal to them. So it was lucky to oh, wow. to be in the state that it was in and to still be alive. But you could smell the burning fur where it had been electrocuted and it had it had sores on its on its um foot pads and so that's one thing is is vehicle traffic and also when they come down to the ground they are vulnerable to domestic dog attacks if they wander into people's gardens and also education is really important because i don't think people not everyone has respect for sloths and when i was in panama Mm. there was a really sad case of a three-toed sloth that a group of kids had actually used as a football and they had, yeah, they they had kicked it around and injured it so badly that it was actually partially paralysed. One side of its body, it couldn't move its its arms, its legs. And so... Oh, my God. I mean, he was a real success story. I think now... I don't think he can ever be released because he's still weak but he can now move he can climb and there was a point where we thought there's no way that he's ever going to regain strength but he did and it took a very long time but he did over time recover but yeah that that's also a threat less of a threat you know human human cruelty and then you mentioned poaching poaching does come into it as well i mentioned the pet trade they will get taken and also this whole issue with, I don't know if you've heard about it, this whole sloth selfie issue. You see, if you go mm. online, there are so many pictures, yeah, so many pictures of people holding yeah. sloth, smiling with sloth. And I, not not at zoos or anything, but when they're on holiday in Costa Rica and or Panama or wherever, and um, there's a whole business where they will just take, they will take baby sloths because obviously they are more manageable. And I've read that they they have to, kill the pair i'm sorry that this this conversation is getting so serious this is the the reality of it you know these people they they will kill the 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 mother in most cases and so that they can take the baby and use the baby essentially as a photo prop and people will be driving along and Mm. someone will be there with a sloth saying oh do you want do you want a picture with a sloth and and they'll pay money to get the photo because tourists just they're not aware of where that sloth came from and so yeah 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 that is that is an issue and often people will come and pay to rescue the sloth in, in some cases that's what happens but that's also that's also an issue yeah there's i think when we look at the different areas around the world obviously like there's a few things that especially when we're looking at such delicate ecosystems like a rainforest which is very specific a lot of the time well a lot of most ecosystems are very specific but ones that aren't used to as much kind of development mm. um, at the speed that areas are developing. You know, our country has gone through it hundreds of years ago. Other countries are going through it now and species are struggling to adapt through that. So I think from the development point of view, whilst we need that to happen for people, we need to make it sure um, and work with these countries and collab together to make sure that the development works for people and wildlife. And then when you've got, you know, like you said about education and getting people to appreciate the wildlife and many do in these areas many people rely on wildlife in their areas to to go forward so it's just tackling those few areas that need to and i think with with tourism i think that's where it really falls on us and you know it was in our government's animal welfare act that was released this year about pinning down you know irresponsible tourism and really 
trying to like ban the adverts for that. So po- photos like that, where tourist companies might use those photos. Mm-hmm. And it's that normal message, isn't it, of question everything before you book and go into it. Question yeah. how it's happened, why it's happened. If there's not that much information, there might be for a reason. So, you know, you really need to start going down that ethical route. So I think you, you touch on some very important points there about it especially you know like i said in these areas that are very very specific you've got animals that have evolved in these incredibly unique ways that cannot have too much interruptions yeah and you you also need to look at it from like a range of scales because like you say you've got these specific ecosystems but if you just preserve one patch of forest Mm. that's going to cause issues because there's also the issue of sloths in breeding because of habitat fragmentation yeah there's no genetic diversity in this population because it's a small patch of forest and the animals no animals can can come in and none can go out so you get this inbreeding and then you end up with sloths with genetic deformities you know that potentially it it can cause kind of disfigurements that will prevent them from surviving you know make them more vulnerable to predators make it more difficult for them to find food sometimes their fur like patches of it will turn white and so you get this albinism and obviously then all the predators can see them in the trees Mm. so things like that you know so it's it's also looking at it at that bigger scale and thinking how can we preserve habitats and also connect them and make sure that these populations yeah. are big enough and they're genetically healthy enough to sustain themselves going forward. Yeah, and like you said, I think you said at the very beginning, like sloths are not unique for needing these kind of things. They're, they're animals, they live very similar to a lot of other animals. And, you know, it's not just about, you know, why is the sloth important? It's like, well, the sloth lives in a very important ecosystem and as do the primates and as do the birds and as do the insects. And these animals need to move around just like we need to move around. So, yeah, I think it's, it, yeah, it's definitely something that corridors wildlife corridors are a thing globally at the moment to try and connect areas and i think it's something that's definitely been spoken about we're going to move on to a bit about weird wildlife we've already spoken about weird wildlife on the podcast before but you said you've always had a passion for it so what would how would you define and you might not have a definition but how would you define something as weird in the wildlife world yeah i mean anything that's otherworldly anything that is also ugly and and underappreciated really (laughs) that's ugly underappreciated and otherworldly that's kind of my definition of weird and it is it's very very broad because I think what comes into it is this kind of storytelling aspect you know I come from a a media Mm. background professionally and and I think yeah, there's a real need to shout about and champion these species that haven't previously got much attention to make people realise that they are unique yeah. and they are worth protecting and they, they need protecting. And so, yeah, that's that's my idea of weird wildlife. It, it can be obvious, it can also be very subtle. You know, you may have a, an animal that you think you're familiar <laughs> with, like the sloth, and then all of a sudden you realise there's so much more to the story than, than what you originally thought. So what about, so if we put sloths to one side, because I'm going to ask you a hard question now, what's your favourite weird animal? That is so hard, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that question. Yeah, I I couldn't say, and I think it's it's one of those things with everything. Like, the more you learn about an animal's biology and ecology... Mm. There's always something odd in there. I, I, you know, I recently discovered that. So, so this week I've been doing some research into the garden, into the wildlife, kind of on my doorstep, out in my garden in my local mm. park, 
And just the little things that you find out. So snails, I'd never I was going to really... say snails. I I'd love never... snails. Yeah, and I'd never really thought about like what's inside the shell because I, I just assumed... Right? I just what a great assumed... name for a book. What a great <laughs> book title. Get that written down. What's okay, inside the I'm shell? All about it. snails. <laughs> but I, I, I thought you kind of there's a body and there's a shell and clearly the mm. shell is attached so so you think you know there's just there's something in there all of its organs are inside the shell they're not in the mm. actual like body they're in the shell the and um just things like that when you start to delve into into something that you thought you knew you see every day mm. and I, I don't know if this is true or not but i also read that they they have green blood and then also they have their, the, you know, the way that their their mouth parts are arranged. They basically have a conveyor belt of teeth that they use to yeah. to rasp at their food. And, you know, when you really, th- this is a very, very common animal that people yeah. go out and will happily kill if they're eating their cabbages or whatever. Mm. But yeah, there's, they're, they're just, they are fascinating. As soon as you start delving into, into an animal's life or a plant's life even, you you just find out all these things and um yeah so it's very hard to pick a favorite weird animal but i am more drawn generally to the wildlife that i see every day and that that we can all go out and see for ourselves yeah i think my love for snails was in, wasn't until i kind of like was working with like african land snails as part of my day and you kind of have this if no one's ever handled an african land snail i would encourage them to try and do so you know wash your hands first with water make sure you're in the right environment and it's responsible but it's it's like seeing a snail but magnified in your hand so you get to see all these elements that our garden snails have but you see these features magnified like the eyes you get to see clearly where the pupil of the eye is the mouth you can see so clearly and actually the one i ha- handled it would go on my hand and you'd feel it eat the hairs off of your hand like just slowly take them off but it just it's like ah this is insane um and they're so like you said they're so bizarre but they're also incredibly cute they've got this real cute face they really are. so i absolutely i just completely fell in love with them yeah they're just so inquisitive as well. Like they really like certain pictures of noises. Like if, if you notice, if you whistle, they kind of like look up at you more. I hope they like it. Anyway, they certainly heard, like felt the vibrations of. Um, and then water, they really like going through like shallow pools of water. I, just, I don't know, just all that kind of stuff. And everyone knows this time of year, we'll get a dry period, then it rains, and then we've got to be careful where we're standing when we go for a walk. Because you yeah. don't want to hear the crunch. My 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 garden is, I don't know where they're coming from, but there is a constant <laughs> stream of... I think, that, I think my garden is the source of all of the UK's snails. I think it's, <laughs> it's like, there are... I am not exaggerating when I say there are... There are potentially thousands out there and we put we put a cam I've got a camera trap out there now running over the pond last year I saw some of the footage and it was just because we put it on time lapse and there were just snails (laughs) whizzing around everywhere hundreds and hundreds of them so I'm quite looking forward to to um having a look at that I might do that later today they're also very good if anyone's getting into photography especially macro they're a very easy animal to start with because they're not going to go anywhere anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> like you have really a got point. a lot of time to focus. Yeah, focus in on your um on your 
object when you're taking pictures. I'll ask this. Is, okay, let's ask this question. What do you think the love for weirder animals um, or the more obscure animals is growing in society? Do you think it's starting to be something that where people are going? Actually, we need to talk about wasps more, for example. It's it's hard to kind of make a sweeping statement on things like this because I I see a lot of the people that I see talking about wildlife is, is kind of on social media and we all we mm. all kind of live in echo chambers yeah. on social media. We <laughs> yeah, follow so people that because people often say to me, oh, but your generation, you know, they're so much more tuned in to environmental issues and conservation issues. And I say, but. I don't I don't think they are I, and and I don't I don't know I cannot say for sure because everybody that I interact with yes they are yeah, yeah. they're passionate about it because we we've we all we've all kind of come together um but I don't I don't know I mean it's still the thing is it's always going to be hard because I think one of the most powerful tools in conservation and just just helping people to appreciate animals and encouraging that that understanding and that love Mm. is things like documentaries sometimes to film some of these things when they're ugly looking or they're tiny or they're really really rare is really difficult and they're hard sells so it's always going to be difficult I think for people to see and connect with those creatures just because of of that side of things I mean everyone's talking about it but obviously over the last year and a half people have opened their eyes to what's living out there in their gardens in their Mm. local parks yeah totally yeah maybe people will care more I don't know I don't know how easy it's hard to make people love wasps but Yeah, I mean, no. personally, I, I'm, I, you know, I don't dislike wasps, but it's, yeah, they're a hard sell. As, as we record this now, we're recording at the end of June, and I tweeted yesterday, I think it's okay oh, I saw. to love nature, <laughs> want to conserve it all, protect biodiversity, and still be allowed to tell a wasp to f- <laughs> Like, I think those two things are allowed to be yeah. the same person. Yeah, yeah so I think, I think yeah. I like wasps are important, but I don't want them around my barbecue. I think that's an all right thing to say. I'm not going to kill them, but I just don't want them nearby. Yeah. Um, Right. Before we press record, Lucy told me that the name of the campaign has changed and I promised her that I would forget it. So you tell me about your campaign called Weird and Wild Live. Weird and Wild wild Live. Weird and Wild. Yeah, Weird and Wild. There you go. Um, Can you tell us about what this campaign is? Because it sounds super interesting and how it came about. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to be approached by National Geographic last year and um, given the opportunity to apply for funding for a project through them. And I have always wanted to do something to help people to better connect with and better appreciate underrated, underappreciated wildlife on our doorstep sort of thing. And to be honest with you, it was an idea that was a very it was a very quick turnaround because suddenly I had this <laughs> whole project proposal to write in the space of I think two and a half weeks I had or three weeks and oh, I wow. went from nothing to this to this fully formed idea. And it's essentially an educational program for primary schools. I'm aiming it at year four, potentially year three students, and it's based around a live stream series that will be all about the weirder side of UK wildlife. So 
all about our native wildlife, but with this weird and, and fun spin, hopefully. And nice. there are going to be classroom resources, so paper-based resources for that, and also activities. I'm hoping that I can encourage the kids to go out into their playgrounds, and mainly the teachers, to take kids out into the playgrounds and create tiny little wild areas, whether it's just like a bucket pond and a wildflower meadow mm. or something as simple as that, to essentially create these miniature nature reserves almost in their school grounds and just to create a kind of network of those across the country just more for just just to keep that connection I think it's so important that we get younger people engaged with that side of things unless they go out and experience it they're never going to to learn to to love and appreciate it and yeah I just felt there was a need to kind of tell a slightly different story and take this weird and and wacky side this different approach to storytelling because kids absolutely love aliens and these things like deadly 60 with predators and ferocious animals and if we can turn insects into into these sorts of if, if we can tell those stories about smaller more everyday species maybe they'll appreciate that more and the value in that is that they can get outside and see those animals for themselves it's not the animals roaming around the african savanna that they may never be able to visit they can just go out and see them i just i wanted to do that and it's very much it's early days at the moment with the project but i'm really excited to just i kind of see it as a it's going to be a real adventure in in research in finding out actually finding out learning about the weird side of wildlife and yeah and telling those stories and finding out more about those animals um so the whole process is going to be really good fun that's so exciting what a cool thing to be a part of and like you said you're almost again creating those corridors around schools hopefully Mm, everywhere that will create these wild areas yeah that'd be amazing it's kind of like ticking all these boxes um my last question for you and apart from your favorite weird animal this might be the hardest one for you it is for everyone. If you could pass on, Lucy, just one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, what bit of advice would you pass on? I thought about this for a while because um, <laughs> I did see this question um, a few days ago when you sent it through to me in the email. And it, it's a hard one, but I, I would say think outside the box. And I mean mm. that in terms of the animals that you I keep saying animals I don't I don't like to forget about plants the species that yeah. you <laughs> um the species that you perhaps wouldn't have thought about before or looked at before you know consider those consider the less attractive less popular species and then also in terms of of careers as well I've always been interested in wildlife and I think it's easy to be quite narrow-minded and think oh okay I need to become like a a reserve warden and go into conservation or get involved with a conservation organization in order to sort of take my passion forward and and bring it into my working life and and make this work but I've also been always been very creative and I've managed to merge this creativity with conservation you know and I've helped to produce live streams that have raised money for conservation organizations and one of the organizations that I'm involved with Reserve of the Youth Land Trust we had a whole virtual concert last summer to raise wow. funds to create the world's first entirely youth funded nature reserve out in Ecuador Amazing. and you know it's like there's a place for music there's a place for sport there's a place for art and everything in conservation so don't just think 
if you've got wildlife as one hobby or interest and then something else and you're thinking they're completely separate but you'd love to be able to merge them in some way. I don't know. Like you can, you can. Yeah, you can, you can do it. Yeah. Creativity has has such a, a big role to play in conservation. And actually, like I said, with the live streams, actually raising funds for organisations, it, it can actually drive drive real change and, mm. and make a positive impact. So, yeah, just just be open minded and, and, and stay curious and explore all these different avenues. Amazing. Well, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us on Into the Wild. I wish you all the best for your work on your campaign. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, no, absolute pleasure. I've learned so much about sloths. I feel like I had an appreciation <laughs> could, now I've got even more. <laughs> I could probably go on for about, for, for days. I was going to say hours, but for days. But yeah, they're really, really interesting creatures and there's still so much we don't know about them. Yeah, I just, I, I, want, I feel like I'm going to be, and what is it? It was the maned, maned sloth. I'm going to look that up because I need to see an angry coconut. So that's definitely something. If you're listening to this podcast, as soon as it's finished, as soon as you listen to my outro, Google main sloth. I was going to say, maybe that should have been my piece of advice is just go and look at main sloths and you'll just feel better about everything. Go and look. (laughs) That's going to be a thing. Oh my God. Do you know what? Anytime I see some bad news, I'm going to tweet a picture of a main sloth (laughs) and I will credit the photographer if I... Um, (laughs) But Lucy, thank you so much. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure and I'll speak to you hopefully in the future soon. Oh, thank you. It's been good fun. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Lucy is working on, you can find her social media tags in the write-up of this episode. And you can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at intothewildpod on Twitter and intothewildpodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however, running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks, and you can do so by buying me a coffee, our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.